Welcome back to the Rise Up Podcast, where we want to help put the good people of the Midwest to work building the energy economy of the future. I'm Jordan Publes. I'm Nick Hyla, and we'll be working together to share opinions, news, resources, strategies, success stories, and actions you can take. And we'll grow the movement to build a local, resilient, clean, and reliable energy system that provides the greatest possible benefit to people and planet. It has been an eventful few weeks since our inaugural podcast, and we've been talking with people all over the Midwest who are working on clean energy issues. Nick, you've talked with and interviewed quite a few people, including today's guest, Bethany McLean. What's on your mind these days? Stability. Uh, Like your mental stability? I mean... Not really, but if you are well-adjusted in times like these, you are probably not paying attention. Okay, point taken. What do you mean by stability, then? I guess I mean how necessary it is for planning, for investment, and even to take risks. You planning on taking some risks? When the mundane act of shopping has become a risk, I think we should all be planning to take some risks... What I'm trying to say is that stable market conditions are necessary to build the energy economy of the future, and I've been consumed with how we get past the current level of disruption. Well, my first thought is to ask, how did we build the vast electricity system we have today through the chaos of the Great Depression, World War II, and the 1970s energy crisis? We somehow built the most productive economy in the world, and even got electricity to some of the most remote parts of the country. And thankfully, my lights are still on, even in today's chaos. That's exactly the question I've been thinking on. Something like, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it? Well, we may be doomed either way, but I have come to some conclusions while looking at the history of U.S. electricity markets, and I think they have a lot of significance today. You are not going to tell me that we need to resurrect Nikola Tesla, are you? (laughs) That would be awesome, but no. Frankly, there are probably a few Teslas at work today, and we've yet to fully appreciate them. I was going to say that during every historical crisis you mentioned, it was public policy intervention that created the market stability and continued investment and innovation that gave us the vast electrical generation and distribution system we have today. Okay, give me a few examples. Well, probably the first most relevant disruption was Tesla and Westinghouse prevailing in the development of AC generators and AC induction motors to provide electricity and power, the Industrial Revolution. With electricity being a natural monopoly and requiring a huge amount of upfront investment, all levels of government had an immediate and pressing task to figure out. How were we going to ensure competition and facilitate investment? Thus the creation of the state utility commissions? Yes, I mean, it wasn't as cut and dry as that, as municipalities wanted to and did own utilities to manage on behalf of their residents. And then you had General Electric and a burgeoning group of companies and investors that were advancing private ownership. So lo and behold, adopting ideas from England in 1907, it was Wisconsin that became the first state to establish a commission to regulate private utilities as a quote-unquote public good. 
providing protections on returns for investors and protections for electricity users. He only had one choice as a provider. By 1914, 43 other states had done the same thing. The state set the rules, created stability, and the market grew. Until the Great Depression. Right. And then we had the New Deal and rural electrification. Yes, and more. The market collapse left widespread financial devastation that did not spare utility investors. So not only did we adopt a vision of bringing electricity to areas that for-profit utilities would not serve because it was too expensive. Rural electrification and the funding of cooperative utilities through USDA Rural Utility Service Funds. Yes, we also established the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, to bring, and I quote, just and reasonable cost-based regulation to the wholesale market, unquote. But also, we passed the Public Utility Holding Companies Act that restricted electric utility investment to a single state. This provided greater oversight by the state commissions. So again, crisis in public policy intervention to create market stability and expand investments, including to rural areas across the U.S. Yep, it was known as the golden age for electric utilities since investors had protected rates of return when they invested in generation and transmission assets, and our economic productivity depended on the availability of reliable electricity. The system worked until the next crisis, the 1973 oil crisis. Yeah, price shocks, supply shortages, and lines at the gas stations. We quickly realized that we needed a more diverse and more domestic and more competitive energy market because global wars for oil were not going away anytime soon, as evidenced by today. So we passed the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, or PERPA, which forced monopoly utilities to interconnect private projects if they met the engineering standards and price requirements. It also led to long-term resource planning processes at most states. It created actual market value for energy efficiency and conservation. And this led to further policy inventions in the 1990s to improve market competition through the formation of the regional markets for power that still exist today and, uh, and that worked to keep the lights on and electricity costs low. See your point, Nick. I think a lot of this just happens in the background for people, and they take for granted how much hard-nosed and hard-fought public policy work went into the modern benefits that we enjoy today. And yes, by all definitions, we are in a crisis right now. So how do you think these lessons translate to today? Well, I would ask you, how much do you think the public values government right now? How informed is the public of the importance of good policy response to crisis? And how does the extreme polarization, blame festival, and made-for-TV drama that is our federal government prepare us for effective public policy intervention now? Well, when you put it like that... Okay, sorry. Let's first recognize that we were in a crisis well before the pandemic with the utility business model of investors get paid more to build more, meeting the reality of decreasing demand due to energy efficiency and the widespread deployment of distributed energy resources like solar and wind. We don't need more and more large central power plants. And the things that utility investors were used to building, coal plants, nuclear plants, gas plants, big transmission projects, are more expensive for ratepayers and energy efficiency then wind farms, then solar farms, and investments in the distribution system that reduced the need for big transmission projects. But don't we need more big transmission projects if we want more solar and wind on the grid? 
Well, that is a very good point for debate, and I understand both sides, but we should leave that for another show. For now, let's just say the electric utilities have the wrong incentives for today's needs. Right. The idea that utilities should be compensated for how reliable the system is, how affordable electricity is, and how beneficial it is, like pollution reduction, instead of how much electricity they sell. Exactly. Low energy costs and energy efficiency use are critical for economic development and are a very strategic public policy goal. And the right policies can dramatically increase investment in new distributed energy technologies. The transition from old energy to advanced energy was already a political and economic crisis that has and will have significant influence on our political process and public policy. The reduction in energy use during the pandemic has really exposed a lot of the underlying problems. Okay, are you finally getting us to the introduction of Bethany McLean and her perspective on the global oil market collapse? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Yes, the U.S. oil and gas industry was the most vulnerable and first to expose the need for better policy. And we were lucky to be able to connect with Bethany McLean and happy to share our interview with her. Jordan, will you do us the honors? Gladly. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The Rise Up Podcast is powered by the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to promote renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainable living through education and demonstration. Let's put the good people of the Midwest to work, making our region a global leader in clean energy development. To learn more about MREA and its programs, visit www.midwestrenew.org. Today's episode is made possible by the support of Northwind Solar, a worker-owned cooperative in central Wisconsin's most trusted solar power system provider. Northwind specializes in the design and installation of solar electric systems and energy storage systems for residential, commercial, agricultural, and governmental customers. Find out what solar can do for you. Northwind Solar offers free, that's right, free, remote assessments and estimates. If you already have a solar array, contact Northwind about adding energy storage to make your home resilient and secure for the future. Find them online at northwindre.com. That's N-O-R-T-H-W-I-N-D-R-E.com or call 715-630-6451. And now let's listen to an interview with Bethany McLean recorded on April 27th. Today, we are talking with Bethany McLean. Many of you know her uh, from her book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which she co-authored after the collapse of Enron. You may have also known that in March 2001, she uh, wrote an article for Fortune magazine called Is Enron Overpriced? And that company collapsed in on itself in October. She also gave us a full picture of the 2008 financial crisis as part of a book she co-authored, All the Devils Are Here. And more recently, uh, she wrote a short book, Saudi America, which looked at the U.S. oil and gas industry and its relationship to not only Wall Street, uh, but to global energy markets. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I imagine that it's a little crazy for you. You're probably in the shelter-in-place situation we're all in, at home, with children, school, work from home, sharing office spaces. How's it going for you? (laughs) You just summed it up. 
perfectly. Um, you know, I try to remind myself every day that I'm lucky. So far, we have enough to eat, and um, we are we are all coping as well as can be expected. But I'm stir crazy, like like everybody else. Yep. So so are, so are we here, and so is everybody listening. So at least we're all in this together. Bethany, you'll probably resist this a little bit, but um, you you have a bit of a history for uh, prognostication here, and uh, and here we sit with uh, global oil markets in disarray and uh, and tankers full of crude oil uh, sitting off of uh, shores all over the world as people look for places to store oil. So I guess to to get started, you know, you've been reporting on these things since the early two thousands. Um, and all of your time, you know, what have you learned that has helped you understand what's happening today? Well, I, I, I guess to begin with a less than helpful caveat, the, the, the biggest thing I've learned is that energy markets are totally unpredictable. And so it's, it's most people who have dared to make predictions about where energy prices were going have one thing mostly in common, which is that they've been wrong. If you think back to the sort of 2007-2008 timeframe, everybody believed that the U.S. was facing a total shortage of oil and natural gas. And that was right at the dawn of fracking, which um, couldn't have changed that dynamic more more profoundly. So it's, it's, it's really hard to, to make predictions. I think right now the oil markets are telling us that the world is quite a bit more scared than the equity markets would, would reflect. You know, the equity markets have rallied pretty substantially on government intervention, but the oil markets are saying this thing is bad. Um, as to where it, where it goes from here, it really depends on the course of, of any recovery that might be. You know, a good portion of oil demand comes from jet travel and from passenger cars. And one of the things that's been really different in this time of oil prices falling is that normally that makes people drive more because gas is cheaper, but it obviously hasn't this time because of the shelter-in-place orders. So do people resume driving to visit relatives um, once shelter-in-place starts to lift, assuming it does? Do do people resume um, air, air travel, or has the world permanently changed? And some of those things are going to dictate some of what, what happens to oil. So I guess, in essence, if it was it's always unknowable and different, difficult to predict. I think that's that's all the more true today. Yeah, we are we are in uncharted waters. Um, let's assume, though, Bethany, that we did get back to normal. Um, how has kind of OPEC's uh, relationship, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia, kind of contributed to this? And uh, what might they do uh, differently as things move forward in the future? So it contributed in in a fairly big way in that just as the pandemic was gaining steam and we were all starting to recognize that it was a pandemic and oil demand was falling radically. I heard a number um, the other day that oil demand fell something like 30% due to the Chinese shutdown as China started shut down before we did. So oil prices were already falling. And then Russia and Saudi Arabia um, over the infamous weekend of March 8th, on March 8th, decided that they would not limit. Um, basically, there was a game of chicken where each one wanted the other to limit production, and they both said we're just going we're not going to limit production. And of course, more supply just means in a time of weak demand means that prices are going to plunge. And so that's what happened. And here we here we are. And and my understanding, at least as was reported, is that um, Russia's position was squarely aimed at taking down the Permian oil drillers. 
And I'm wondering if you think that is real and if that's going to continue. Well, I think that might be overstating it. And here's here's what I mean. I, I, I think it's very difficult to know. Somebody cautioned me when I was working on my book yeah, that just don't ever think you can know what is going on in the minds of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I think the same is true for Putin's Russia. Don't ever think that you can sit on the outside and understand what the calculation is. Um, I think there's always been an understanding within energy markets that shale was very, very vulnerable because the industry doesn't make make money. So it's financially weak. It's dependent on investors' willingness to continue to, to fund it. And that willingness had already been changing um, even before the, the pandemic hit. Investors were already saying, wait, 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 we don't want to put money into this thing that doesn't, that doesn't make a return. So the investor skepticism had already started. And within the energy industry, none of that is, is any secret. So it wasn't as if shale was this, this incredibly powerful thing that Russia and Saudi Arabia knew had, had, they had to take down. It was incredibly powerful in the amount of production, but they also saw what, what its weakness was. Um, and it's very, very price dependent because even at $50 a barrel, most producers don't make money. So knock the price down and you've, you've basically um, um, revealed the industry's Achilles heel. So that's, that's one part of it. But I think there's another dynamic going on here too, which is that both Saudi Arabia and Russia are aware that the end of the age of oil is, is coming, right? And it's not clear when that's going to be, but as soon as we see when the dawn of the age of renewables is going to be, the price of oil is going to go into a secular decline. And so for economies like Saudi Arabia and Russia that are dependent on the, the, the price of fossil fuels to be able to fund their economy, Saudi Arabia in, in particular needs an oil price of about $80 a barrel to, to, to balance its budget. And at some point, if if energy if oil prices are going to go into a freefall or a secular decline, what anybody smart would do would be to pump as much as you can now in order to get as much money as you can today before there is no more money to be gotten. Right. <laughs> so that that is that's part of the ongoing calculation of these countries too. Is do you do you get more money for your economy by maximizing production today rather than waiting to pump in the future when prices may be lower yet? Yeah, it's interesting that you know that type of mindset plagues the market and is hard to is hard to break from. I guess um, you bring up so many good questions, but and we'll we'll get to these bigger Wall Street pictures hopefully. Um, but I, I want to stick with oil and gas right now. I'm wondering, you know, as we see, um, you know, the Houston mayor just came out and said uh, they're suffering for from two blows right now. Not only um, the the downturn in the market and widespread unemployment, but the downturn in revenue for the city. And, uh, you know, there's a, a list here of all the companies that are calling and adding uh, to the unemployment list and laying people off. And they're expecting, I guess, between 200,000 and 300,000 uh, jobs uh, to, to be gone from the industry. And as we see this decline and, I guess, companies um, fail, what do you see as the, the future of the industry? Are we seeing consolidation um, and just bigger companies arise out of this? Or, or what, what do you think makes the most sense if we, if we see a recovery? 
Well, in the short term, it's nothing but ugly, and it's a real contrast from the financial crisis, because in the wake of the financial crisis, that was just when fracking was getting started, and as a result, even though you had um, high unemployment levels, you had this you had this growing, exploding industry that was creating jobs, and you can't underestimate the importance of that, and this time it's different, right? This industry is instead um, going to be a massive contributor to unemployment instead of a sponge that soaks that soaks some of it up, and I, that's whatever you think of oil and, and gas. That's a tragedy for the people whose whose livelihoods d- depend on it, and it's a broader problem than than just that. Because as you pointed out, there are cities that are dependent on the tax revenue from this industry, and um, they're going to be they're going to be in trouble as well and be unable to fund some 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 social services. So I think, I mean, there's in the short term, it's 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 going to be really really hard and it's going to contribute to what's already a, a going to be a really tough picture for for America. In the long term, I again, I, I just don't know. I don't think that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates anytime soon, obviously. And cheap capital can can make a lot of things possible that wouldn't be possible if money were more expensive. On top of that, there are there there are still talks about you know, President Trump bailing out the oil and gas industry. Um, and so it a lot of it depends, which to me is totally ironic because most of these guys, and they are mostly guys in the oil and gas business, are adamant free marketeers. But now, in some ways, the future of their business depends on government action, um, which is an interesting irony. Yeah, I wonder how how we um, take these two two opposing views, which is that, you know, oil and gas will will senesce as uh, as renewables rise, uh, most mostly wind and solar and electrification, but that there is this short-term pain um, that the industry faces that is widespread and affects jurisdictions and uh, and budgets and and real people losing their jobs. And um, and we have the Fed's money printer going brr and just, you know, I think we've created $12, $12 trillion of of liquidity, um, so so do you, do you have a sense of what the industry might look like? What will the F- I know the Fed has definitely helped to um, gobble up some bad debt of the oil and gas companies. What else are they looking for? Well, I I wish there were. I just I never pretend to know what I don't know, and I wish your your questions had had an answer. And there are probably people who would be more comfortable prognosticating than than I am. I don't know. I wish I wish there were there were an easy answer to this. But some of this depends on how, as I mentioned, how we come out of this pandemic. If we come out of it, um, what happens to demand? Some of it comes. There's always been a question around what the timing of renewables were were going to be. Um, in some ways, that's that's a cost question. Question, right? Are renewables cheaper than the non-renewables? And you could make an argument that with oil and gas as cheap as they are now, that actually might push back the era of, of, of renewables because at least for a while it's going to be pretty che- awfully cheap to do things with oil and gas, right? And so the comparison um, the comparison is not going not going to be good for for um, for for renewables. Um, there are just so many factors at work. It's like a game of calculus where you don't know any 
any of the variables. And I think it's worth knowing knowing what the variables are and, and thinking of them. But I think for anybody to say that they know what's going to happen here or have a crystal ball into what the future is going to look like, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing that. Well, now that we're in this theoretical, I have some greater questions for you. Um, uh, the founder and CEO of Social Cap- Capital, uh, billion-dollar investor Chamath Palihapitiya, he made news a few weeks ago, uh, and and what he had said was that we should let um, we should let some of these companies fail instead of rescuing them, and uh, and he was quoted as saying, you know. The way this has been done does not necessarily position companies to thrive in the medium and long term, and that will disproportionately affect employees and pensions because if you allow these companies to go through managed bankruptcies, that would push the risk to where he claims it belongs, the speculators who own the unsecured tranches of debt and the private equity firms and not the employees. And I wonder if if you've heard of this and, and to get your reaction about that. Um, I haven't heard of it, but it strikes me as an argument um, about moral hazard that may be right, but that that has a lot of costs and trade-offs. And what I mean by that is that it may may be right, um, unsecured it, it, theoretically, unsecured in, um, creditors and equity investors are supposed to bear the risk of uh, business failing, and that risk is supposed to have tail risk, which means the risk from unpredictable events like like a pandemic. And so, in that purely theoretical world, yes, let them let them fail, um, and let let the market work. As, as it would. Um, in a less theoretical and more practical world, um, I, 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 I don't know, because that means a short-term huge increase in unemployment as those businesses fail, and what happens to all the people whose jobs are dependent on that, particularly if we don't have a recovery. Um, and in addition, pension plans across this country are already wildly underfunded. And if you make matters even worse, I don't know how how we recover from that. So I think I guess it's a question of, of belief. I think a lot of people who who believe in the moral hazard argument just have a really strong view about the proper functioning of markets and other people have a more interventionist view and um, I'm I'm hard pressed to know which one is right. Yeah, under understood. You know, in particular, he he had said, you know, in the last four weeks, we have printed more than twelve trillion dollars into the economy. We could have given every single person in the United States their entire twenty nineteen wages and paid off every person's student debt and still had five trillion dollars for companies. And, <laughs> wow, that's stunning. And and so I think a lot of it is the the method by which um, the Fed has intervened. I guess we are all in this place where where we don't really know. And, um, and our take home, and, uh, and maybe you can comment on it, is that right now with the liquidity that we have, that our investments now are, are absolutely critical. Yeah, I think that's a really smart point of view. I think there will be a lot of questions for years to come about what the government response was, just as there was in the wake of the, the financial crisis. And I think you could 
make an argument looking back that something fundamentally changed. So we had a, what looks now like a minor economic collapse in the early 2000s with the collapse of the first dot-com bubble. But you can argue that out of that bubble came some really worthwhile things. Out of the smoldering wreckage of the first dot-com bubble, we got Amazon, we got Google, we got a whole bunch of other companies that have really gone on to create an immense amount of value. Um, um, so you can argue there was there was something there. Out of the financial crisis, not much, right? It was the inflation of an asset called a house, and then the dramatic deflation of that asset. And then I think you can argue that government policy in the wake of the financial crisis exacerbated inequality by keeping interest rates low and helping speculators make a fortune, but didn't do much for uh, for for average people. I guess the counter to that would be is that just as we headed into this um, pandemic, you were starting to see some this translate into um, into wages and jobs for 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 everyone else but it took an awfully long long time and in the meantime you know our infrastructure in this country is in terrible shape and we have not made the investments into renewable energy that 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 we should have and so you could argue that the money the money could be spent in a way in a way more in a way more thoughtful manner I think I mean it's 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 Capitalism, right? The U.S. has never believed in a planned economy, so the U.S. has believed in creating creating money and let letting the letting the market function with that money as it will, rather than having a government plan for how for how the money should be spent. Um, and it's just a philosophical underpinning of the way this 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 country has been. Although you look back to the Great Depression and with the Great Works Program, etc., we there have been many times in this country's history where we have had more central planning. And if you if we are ever to go in that direction, you would think now now would be the time for that, right? Especially given that there is so much that this country needs. Yeah. Um, I guess that, that brings up the question is who will be making the decisions. I, I see two headlines here that moved me. One was coronavirus made America's biggest banks even bigger. Some $1 trillion in deposits flooded in during the first quarter with more than half going to J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. And that America's billionaires have gotten $280 billion richer since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we know that the stock market with all of the debt purchasing is only off, uh, you know, 10 to 15, 16%. And there are uh, tens of millions of people out of work. So, I guess when we think about, you know, that context, um, you know, what what do you see? Do you see uh, this trend towards consolidation and bigger and bigger in oil and gas and in banks in general? Well, I, I I think it's inevitable in the short term in banking because everybody wants their money to be safe, right? So you're going to go with, with the biggest banks, and that's probably rational, even if the long-term outcome is, in my view, somewhat somewhat unfortunate, <laughs> because I think making the big banks even bigger in the wake of the financial crisis was a, was a mistake, and we're obviously trending more in the same direction now, and I, I, I don't think that that's healthy. There's an old Thomas Jefferson quote about the danger of the banks um, beginning to rule rule the nation. And, and I, I don't remember the exact words right now, but it's a very telling telling quote. And we've been going in that direction for, you know, 20 plus years. And if the coronavirus accelerates that, it's it's probably not great. Um, as for oil and gas, um, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I would guess there would be consolidation, assuming any of the big companies are in good enough shape themselves to be buyers. 
And again, that comes back to this idea of how much demand there's going to be for oil and gas going forward. If there still is, if assets get really, really cheap and the big companies have enough of a balance sheet to be acquirers and they believe there's going to be enough demand going forward for this industry to make sense, then yes, you will you will probably see consolidation. Um, and maybe that's sensible at, at, at the end of it all because you you can argue that big companies can be perhaps more efficient than, than in oil and gas than smaller ones can and more rational and maybe make money at a lower lower cost per barrel than, than the little companies have. Um, but again, there just there's so many what ifs. Yeah, the the questions on on the our mind here because the wholesale electricity markets are driven, you know, by natural gas sales is um, futures markets that are predicting increases in price as refineries slow down um, and as the and as the in- industry in general experiences low oil prices. Do you have a sense of what, what that might look like? I, I would think that we might see higher natural gas prices and the, the natural gas fracking industry is much closer to making money at very low prices than the oil industry is. They, re- they really are almost two different industries, at least from a financial standpoint. And so if you do see um, natural gas fracking really coming to a halt, then you're going to have shortages of natural gas, at least in the short term, and prices are going to go higher. And that is going to make the industry um, able, able to make money, which then will result in increased production again. How all of that shakes out um, over the long term, I, I don't know, but um, I, I, I would expect in the short term you might see, a res- you might see an eventual resurgence of, of natural gas fracking. Well, very interesting. Bethany, you are a, a Midwesterner. You were uh, born in northern Minnesota in the same town as Bob Dylan. You reside in Chicago. Uh, we're proud to claim you as a Midwest native. I wonder in all of this, um, everything that we've experienced over the last six weeks, um, what, what, do you, what has really touched you? What, what has um, really inspired you? Do you have any good, good parting words for us? Well, I, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to find much inspiration. I guess there is something beautiful about the way the nation has been willing to come together in order to protect our, our most vulnerable uh, and people people, I think, really, really want to do good, and they really want to help other people. And that's something that you maybe wouldn't have believed um, before before this happened. But people, people care. Thanks. I did really appreciate a recent Twitter post of yours, which read, maybe we could come together as a country if we could respect each other's biggest fears. For some, it's the virus. For others, it's their ability to feed their families or get treatment for their cancer or keep the business they've spent their lives building. And uh, and I really appreciate that that sense of empathy to understand what everybody's going through out there. Yeah, I think there's a big there's a big fight, obviously, right, where people put people in two different camps. And I don't know how we've managed to politicize this along with everybody else. But in simple terms, you have the stay at home forever crowd and the and the let's open up the economy crowd and the amount of hatred and rancor that is growing on both sides is just stunning, especially when we really do all want the same thing, which is to save as many lives as possible, but also have an economy that functions so people can feed their families and and keep their businesses. And so we really are all in this together. And if the if the open the economy people could look at the stay at homers and say they're trying to do they're trying to do something really beautiful. They're trying to protect other people. This comes from a good place. And if the stay at homers could look at the let's open up the economy and say they're they're worried about feed, about people's ability to feed their 
your family about the food supply chain, which is starting to break down, about educational disparities for kids when some people can't be there to homeschool their their, their kids, um, then maybe we could have some, some understanding and move past some of the rancor. With those kind words, it seems like a good place to end. And thank you very much for your time, Bethany. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bethany certainly has a seasoned perspective on the oil and gas industry. Nick, you conducted the interview a little over a month ago, and a lot has happened since then. Tell us, what developments have either reinforced or changed your perspective since that time? Yes, Jordan, a lot has happened since then. It's been only a month, but it does feel like a year. Let's see. Um... The first thing was that on April 21st, President Trump pledged uh, the financial aid to the oil industry. And then as part of the CARES Act, uh, the Federal Reserve took some actions. They increased the size of companies that would qualify for loans. So they increased the revenue limit of companies to $5 billion. And uh, they erased the acquirement. They had to have uh, good standing. Their uh, stock had to be in good standing in March. Uh, originally, the program was supposed to just save fallen angels, companies that were affected. But uh, most of the oil companies had very poorly rated debt. And so they erased that and allowed uh, kind of the widespread bailout of the oil and gas industry. Um, in addition, uh, many of the oil companies uh, took advantage of a little notice provision in the stimulus bill. Uh, for example, as Bloomberg reported, um, Diamond Offshore Drilling took advantage of a little notice provision in the stimulus bill Congress passed in March to get $9.7 million tax refund, and then it asked a bankruptcy judge to authorize the same amount as bonuses to nine executives during the bankruptcy. So a lot of this uh, shysterism happened in the industry, bankrupting uh, companies and uh, and golden parachutes uh, for exec executives. And uh, then the Trump administration cut royalty rates for oil and gas on federal lands while they increased uh, royalty rates for wind and solar. Um, and then uh, uh, it was reported again uh, widely, this one in the New York Post, that the fortunes of U.S. billionaires grew $434 billion. And, um, and then Bloomberg uh, also then reported uh, about the junk debt, uh, the massive amounts of junk debt that the Fed has been buying uh, to um, buoy Wall Street. And in all of that, um, what happened uh, was that the stock market was given the signal that uh, all risk uh, would be bought and the Treasury was there to save them. So all of the highly indebted zombie companies out there uh, leveraged one trillion more in new debt, as you may be aware, the tax cut that was passed at the beginning of the Trump administration dramatically cut uh, corporate tax liability, and they used that to leverage debt to repurchase their own stock. But we've already surpassed the amount of corporate debt uh, in 2019 and 2020, it's over $1 trillion. And now one in every six U.S. corporations does not even make enough money to service their debt. And I quote from Axios, highly indebted zombie companies, the firms that don't even earn enough revenue to pay interest on their debt, are one out of every six U.S. companies and currently control nearly 2.2 million 
jobs. Outside of the $12 trillion created by the Fed to buy uh, bonds, our direct debt uh, and stimulus was $2.4 trillion. And USA Today reported that if you covered the entire geography of Washington, D.C. with that $2.4 trillion in dollar bills, that the entire area would be covered 140 bills deep, just so you know, the giant pile of uh, debt that we've uh, just accumulated. So the news uh, has been a rise in the stock market. It has been now more than 40 million Americans unemployed, a massive amount of government and corporate debt and uh, yet to see the stability uh, in policy that we need at the state or federal level to expand uh, the new energy economy. That all seems very concerning, Nick, and frankly depressing. Feels like we are witnessing a tragic misinvestment of resources that aren't really serving a clear future energy vision. Reminds me of how Bethany was discussing the timing of the rise of renewables and that relationship to the unpredictable cost of fossil fuel. Judging by the rapid transition of investment to solar and wind energy that has occurred over the last few years, do you think we are any closer to this inevitable rise or have recent events set us back? Well, Jordan, the answer to that question now rests with federal and state leadership. If we take this moment of chaos in the fossil fuel industry to create market stability for investment in the solar and wind energy industry, where fuel costs are known, that is, free, and the economic benefits are realized locally, and are not under the influence of decisions by Saudi Arabia, Russia, or for the most part, even the Federal Reserve, we can realize an age of economic growth and stability seen after our greatest historical crises of the past. We have the ability to do this. We must. Rise up, Midwest. And if you want to join our growing coalition of businesses, individuals, organizations, jurisdictions, and workforce development partners, all working together to create a groundswell of support for common sense, strategic, and swift policy action to put the good people of the Midwest to work building the energy economy of the future, please consider supporting the Rise Up Midwest movement through both sponsorship and partnership. For more information, please visit www.riseupmidwest.org or email us at info at riseupmidwest.org. Be sure to tune in to upcoming episodes of Rise Up to hear important insights and timely updates from the experts that are working in and on the pressing issues that affect your access to clean energy. On our next episodes, we'll sit down with Andy Johnson, director of the Winnesheek Energy District, to discuss Iowa's new net metering law, David Bender, clean energy attorney of the nonprofit organization Earth Justice, who argued and won the Kansas Supreme Court case that struck down extra fees on solar-owning Kansans, and Tian Nelson, managing director of the Outrider Foundation will share with us insights on how grassroots activism can serve as a catalyst for enacting clean energy policy. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Rise Up podcast. To learn more about the content on today's show, please visit our resource hub on www.riseupmidwest.org. Be sure to sign up for Rise Up action alerts while on our website so you can get the latest in clean energy news delivered directly to your inbox. Until next time, Rise Up Midwest. Thank you.